As we look at Jonah today, we are then obviously taking a bit of a break from the series that we've been engaged in through the book of James. We are into the second to the last chapter, chapter four of five chapters in James. We'll pick that up in just a few weeks and then finish that book. But each year, at the end of the year, as we go into a new year, I offer a a New Year's message to try to prepare myself and us as a congregation for the year that is ahead, and that's the purpose of today's message. We're going to get to Jonah shortly, but I wanted to take just a bit to show you some pictures of my trip to China just a couple of weeks ago. Now, why am I going to take some time to do that? It's because, one, uh, you partly paid for that trip. So you at least need some proof that I actually went. So I'm going to show you pictures. The majority of that trip was financed by our friends at Grace Baptist Mission. They paid the airfare and other expenses, and just a few accrued to to us. But nevertheless, you gave me the time off to do that, so I want to show you some of those. Also because I want to relate some of my experience there to the message in the book of Jonah just a bit later. Now... Many of you know that I've been able to go to teach uh, Chinese house church leaders twice in the past. And the way that's gone in the two prior visits is those house church leaders would come to a location off of mainland China. And then I would go there and be able to teach 15 or 20 of those house church leaders. And I've been able to do that, as I say, twice in the past. Well, the same group that has organized those teaching sessions for pastors and professors from from here to go there, uh, that same group is exploring a different strategy, and that is to have the training actually take place on the mainland. And so this time I did go to mainland China, and they are still involving house church pastors But unbeknownst to me until I actually got there, they were actually having some folks from those house churches, members of those churches, attend as well. So instead of 15 or 20, there were about 45 people. About half of those were church members, and a good number of those, as you will see in some of the pictures, were ladies. Now, when I arrived, I arrived in the capital city of Beijing, and I had just a couple of hours to walk to downtown Beijing, the center of the Chinese uh, government seat uh, in Beijing. And so I spent that couple of hours uh, doing that. I'll show you some some pictures from that. But then later flew to another town, uh, Qingdao, which is where two of our missionaries, the Howells and the Selsteads, are are serving. And I was able to spend a day and a night uh, with them and then flew from there to a town called Nanjing, And we drove from the Nanjing airport two hours to some rural area, and that's where I spent uh, the five days days teaching. But it started in in Beijing, and I arrived very early on Saturday morning, and when daylight came on Saturday, I was able to walk 10 minutes to Tiananmen Square. And Tiananmen Square is, as I say, right in the seat of the government of the nation of China. And this is across the street from the square. You can see some guardrails there. And the reason is, is because there is now heavy security to gather in Tiananmen Square. And I say now there is because back in 1989, some of you may remember that there was a protest that involved over a million people that gathered 
in, in the square. And there was a massacre that occurred as a result of that. In fact, there's this famous picture. You see that road there that I'm taking the picture from? That's the road where these tanks were and where there's this young man, only known to the world as Tank Man, standing in front of these, these tanks as part of the uh, protest. And to this day, no one knows what actually became of, of, that, of that young man. So it was an eerie feeling indeed to be standing in the place where, where, that, where that occurred. And then walking through the square itself, there are the government buildings all around. And then this building is in front of what's called Forbidden City. So I was able to go into a portion of Forbidden City, and then there's a, a part of that that you have to pay for to go through further. And I didn't, not because I didn't want to pay, but because I didn't have time. I only had two hours, had to get back to the hotel, take a taxi back to the airport. And then ultimately wound up a couple of days later, as I said, in outside of Nanjing for the teaching. And I was hosted there by a pastor and his family, and this is in their home. And this is at one of the three meals a day that, that they served. And I want you to note something that you'll see throughout these pictures. Everybody's wearing coats in the house. It's freezing. Nobody warned me about it being freezing inside the house. But that is uh, what they do at every meal and all day in the winter. They wear coats uh, and winter garb in, in the house because they are conserving on, on energy. Now, when I first walked into this house on a Sunday night and everybody was wearing their, their winter garb, I thought, if, if I have to sleep in this, then this will be a difficult week indeed. But thankfully, the room that they gave me had a heater in it, and I was nice and toasty during the night. I can't say the same in the morning when trying to take a shower. As you walk out of my room, and there's a stark difference between that heater that I had and then the hallway. And the first morning, Monday morning, I got up very early to take a shower, stumbled my way to the bathroom, and turned the uh, shower head on and just let the water run, to the, turned it to the left for hot water, let it run, let it run, hot water's going to come. Prayed for hot water. <laughs> Prayed for wine to come out of the water. I'll take anything at this point. And I figured, well, maybe it's opposite in China. So I turned it the other way, waited for five minutes, just ice cold, absolutely ice cold. So no shower. It turns out that the water from whatever source it comes, I don't know if it's from the sun, really, I don't know, but you don't have hot water until the afternoon in, in the winter. So showers were in the afternoon rather than in the morning. So that very first day of teaching, uh, I had bedhead as I, as I taught. The good news is all the Chinese guys have bedhead as, as well. So this is the meals. The meals were, were very, very good and very, very plentiful. And there were always six or eight people at a round table, and then they have in the middle there, you see a kind of lazy Susan, and you can just uh, twirl that around and then take whatever you want of the, the vegetables, and you see it's steaming there. Stuff was always hot, and as I say, very, very good. But this next picture uh, shows me, well, you see, yeah, taking a close look, one, But also, I have, a, I have a fork in my hand, in my right hand. And they were kind enough to give me something other than chopsticks to, to eat with. 
And not only that, they allowed me to go first and take as much as I wanted from the bounty that they had there. And so the first time, I didn't take a whole lot because I thought, if I'm still hungry, I'll get seconds and I want to leave enough. Well, it turned out there was more than enough for everybody there. And them giving me the first shot turns out to be a very good thing. And for me to take as much as I can in that first shot turns out to be a very good thing as well. For this reason, you see the uh, chopsticks. Well, this is their custom. This is just what they do. That they just turn the thing and they take the chopsticks and they pull out a piece of vegetable or a piece of beef or a piece of chicken or whatever it is. And it goes from there directly to the mouth. And then a double dip and a triple dip and a quadruple dip. So each meal, they always deferred to me, let me go first, and I shoveled a bunch of stuff. And then they would, when I was finished, they would say, do you want more? And, and I never did. I never, had, I never had seconds. But it was all very good, and they were very hospitable. This is Peter, 29-year-old young man. He's only been saved for six years. He got saved uh, in, uh, in Qingdao. Uh, at university through the ministry of Campus Crusade for, for Christ. And he is now associated with our missionaries, Rob Howell and Hal Selstead. And he served as my translator. And so when you teach to folks who don't speak English, then it's one line at a time, and you start to get a cadence with that. And the better your translator, the better it goes. And Peter was very, very, very good and very, very helpful to me in a number of ways. Then this is us teaching. And then that's a shot of the group. As as I said, you can see that there are ladies there, and everybody's wearing coats. Keeps everybody awake. And here's a shot of the entire group. You see on the left the two young ladies making the hand signals and all of that. There's a, there's a share and joy in, in every group expressing themselves. And then here they are again. And I don't have any idea what that says at the top of the building, but that's where the teaching took place. And then the house for this pastor where I stayed is right next door to that. So for those five days, uh, I went two places the pastor's house, and next door to the venue for the teaching. And I was told by the brothers there to do that. Go from here to there. Don't walk down the street. We don't want anyone seeing a foreigner asking any questions. So just go from from here to there. But it was a very, very profitable time. A whirlwind trip altogether, nine days. Flew five times in those nine days. Three times in the first three days. But uh, lived to tell about it. And as I say, I'll allude to that a little bit later in our message. The subject that I was teaching while there was how to interpret the Bible. And I gave them four rules of interpretation that those of you that have taken our How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible course have have heard. But this was all brand new to these brothers and sisters. And those four rules are that a text cannot mean what it never meant. And if you've never heard that rule, if you haven't taken that uh, class, we offer those on Wednesday nights, and we encourage you to do that at the next opportunity. But a text cannot mean what it never meant. The second rule of interpretation is that a text has only one meaning. 
And thirdly, all texts are not alike. And fourth, the Bible communicates a unified message. A text cannot mean what it never meant. A text has only one meaning. All texts are not alike. The Bible communicates a unified message. Now, all of that was, was new to them, but especially the second one, that, that, or the third one, that all texts are not alike. The fact that the Bible contains different kinds of books that are different kinds of literature that need to be interpreted in keeping with the kind of book that it is. And so it was news to these Chinese brothers and sisters that a proverb, for instance, is not to be interpreted the same way as a law given by God to, to Moses, that a proverb by its very design is a, is a general truth. And I pointed out to them that two-thirds of the Bible is written in narrative, that it is, it is stories about people who lived in very different places and at very different times. But I also said to them that despite the fact that the Bible is two-thirds stories about other people in other places, in other times, in other cultures, it is still all profitable for us because even though there are plenty of differences between them and us, two very important things have not changed. And the first is God has not changed. And secondly, people have not changed. And so I said to them as I say to you, every time we read of God's interaction with people in Scripture, in, in, scripture, in those two-thirds of the Bible that are narrative, we should always be asking ourselves, what does this say about God? What does this teach about us? Because those two things have not changed. In fact, the Bible can be summarized really in one line. The Bible is about people in situations in relation to God. People in situations in relationship to God. People, situations, and God. The situations are quite varied. But people have not changed, and God has not changed, and because two-thirds of the Bible gives us is, is these stories of people's interaction with God, then you can find yourself in these various stories, and that is indeed God's design. And Jonah is one such story. Four chapters and a story about Jonah's interaction with God, and it will include some others in a city called Nineveh as well. So here's what I'd like to do. Most of the details of this story are familiar to most of you. I would like to give an overview of that story, and then I would like for us to make application to ourselves, looking at what it says to us about ourselves and about God. So please take a look at chapter 1. In verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Now, this Jonah, about whom this story is, is, is centered, is one who is spoken of elsewhere in, in Scripture. The Bible says in 2 Kings chapter 14, the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. Now, that town from which Jonah hails is about 500 miles from the town that God says, I want you to go 
and I want you to, to preach. And so the story in verse 2 of Jonah chapter 1 goes on to tell us, Go to that great city of Nineveh, God says, and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Now when it says that the wickedness of this city has come up before God, that will remind those who first read this of similar language about two cities called Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 18, where the Bible says the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah has come up before, before God. And so what's going on in Nineveh at the very beginning is set as very dire indeed, and their evil is set in a very stark context. Nineveh has a history that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 10 in your Bible. The Bible speaks there of one named Nimrod. You remember Nimrod was the one who led the building of the Tower of Babel. But prior to doing that, his construction feats included building the city of of Nineveh. And so Nineveh has a long and often inglorious history. It was one of the principal and ancient cities in a nation called Assyria, and it later became the capital of the nation of Assyria. Archaeologists date the oldest of its discovered remains to 4500 B.C. It's located on the banks of the Tigris River in modern-day Iraq. And if you remember following the Iraq War, there were several towns like uh, Basra and others to Crete that you'll remember, of course, Baghdad, but one of them that was often spoken of was Mosul. And Mosul is directly across the Tigris River from where Nineveh was located. The city of Nineveh then, with this, with this history, stood for humans exalting themselves in the place of God and even the desire to have power in opposition to God. And so God tells Jonah, Jonah, I want you to go preach against the city of Nineveh, because its wickedness has risen up before me. The prophet Nahum, the entire book of Nahum, is prophecies against Nineveh. And in chapter 3 of Nahum, this is what is said, Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. Nothing can heal your wound. Your injury is fatal. Everyone who hears the news about you claps his hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? And their cruelty was renowned. Uh, I, it, it was so despicable that it is, it, it is too despicable to even describe, really, what they would do with those who were their enemies and who they would take as prisoners of war. In 722 B.C., Israel would be taken captive by Assyria. And Jonah is, is prophesying and carrying on his ministry several decades before that. But the specter of the power of Assyria and the growing city of Nineveh is looming over Israel. They were arrogant and they were cruel, but it was a vast city, growing ever larger. 
It was big, it was bad, and it was an intolerable affront to God. And so what does Jonah do in response to God's command to rise up and go and preach against the city? Verse 3 of chapter 1. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed toward Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Jonah had good reason to flee in the opposite direction. And many of you know Tarshish is in the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. It would be quite understandable for any of us to be afraid of such a mission. And so as Jonah runs, God causes a storm to arise, chapter 1 tells us. And we're reminded in chapter 1 that God controls everything and everyone, including the seas. Notice verse 9. After Jonah is questioned by the terrified sailors about why this calamity has come upon them, he says in verse 9, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. And verse 10 says, this terrified them and they asked, what have you done? Now they're really not asking, what have you done? (laughs) They're saying, you fool, what have you done? How do I know this is what they're saying? Notice the parenthetical note. They knew he was running away from the Lord. He had already told them. So they're not asking for information. They're saying, why have you included us in your dispute with a God who controls the sea? And in case you didn't notice, we're on the sea. This is really bad. They don't want to, in effect, murder him by throwing him overboard. And they cast lots to find out if indeed they are, they are correct. If you read on, you'll find that the lot fell to, to Jonah. Now, just quickly, this whole business of a lot being cast and it falling on Jonah, and it turns out to, to be right. There's a proverb that says this. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Even seemingly chance matters are in the control of sovereign God. And it is no accident that the lot falls to to Jonah. And he is identified then without doubt. And the sailors then feel comfortable doing what they were uncomfortable with, namely throwing him overboard. The story goes on to tell us that uh, he did that. They did that. And as Jonah is, is in the sea, he is terrified because it is a violent storm. In all likelihood, unless a miracle happens, he is, going to, he is going to die. He's terrified as well because there are creatures in the sea, not only the, the, the difficulty of the sea itself and the storm that's arisen, but the creatures that are in the sea that were known to Hebrews and are spoken of in your Old Testament, including the book of Psalms which says this, It is you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you, God, who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave him as food to the creatures of the desert. And so there is this this understandable fear of what is in the water and the creatures that are in the water, often called in the Old Testament Leviathan. 
referring to a, a great beast called here a monster. And yet, Psalm 104 says, even Leviathan is controlled by God. Just as ships go to and fro, and Leviathan, which you formed to frolic in those waters. And so as Noah, or excuse me, as Jonah is in the water, unless God intervenes, he will die, but we know the story. He is swallowed by a great fish. Chapter 2 tells us this. Now, let me just dispense with this fish business. This is one of the stories that's most ridiculed by those who don't believe the Bible. How is it that a man could be swallowed by a fish and live and survive in the depths of this fish for three days and three nights? And so some have tried to show that there have been stories in years past where people have actually been swallowed by fish and survived. Not for three days, for a short period of time, but supposedly it's actually happened. But none of that helps because the truth of the matter is this is a miracle provided by God as a sign of His power and His control. And the truth is it is predicated on the miraculous and that is predicated upon belief in creation. If you were with us last week in our Discovering God Hour, I said after creation all of life is footnotes. And we'll continue that in our second hour today. And what I mean by that is this, once you accept that God created the world out of nothing, then the God who created this world can do with that world as He pleases. And so I agree with William Jennings Bryan, who when asked during the Scopes monkey trial, how do you explain this Jonah in the belly of a great fish stuff, he said, God made man and God made fish, and He can do as He pleases with both. And that's what God does here. He provides, the Bible says, in verse 17 of chapter 1, He provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And this is not a punishment to Jonah. I used to think that when I was a kid. When I would hear the story and read the story, I would think, well, if you disobey God, watch out, you might get swallowed by a fish. But this is actually God's mercy to him, saving his, his life. And Jonah understands that, as we'll see in chapter 3, as he praises God, as he was going down into the depths, going down for the final time, and yet God showed his mercy to Jonah. In chapter 2 and verse 10, says that the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now, God commanded Jonah in chapter 1 and verse 1, and Jonah goes in the opposite direction. God commands the fish, and the fish immediately obeys. And we are to see the irony between those those two. And chapter 3 then goes on to tell us that this is all God's mercy to Jonah. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Now just note that, my friends, that God has given Jonah a second chance. We take second chances for granted. Hear this. God owes no one a second chance. And God did not owe Jonah this second chance, but he gave it to him because of his mercy and his grace. And he says in verse 2, Go to the great city of Nineveh. Proclaim to it the message that I give you. 
So now Jonah sees, at least we think, the error of his way. And verse 3 says that he obeyed the word of the Lord and he went to, to Nineveh. And Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. So I was in Beijing. I wish I had had three days to see the Great Wall and all of the sites in that great city. This was a city that required three days to see what, what was in it, is what the writer is telling us. And it's called a great and important city. Verses 4 and 5 of chapter 3, Jonah obeys and he preaches. And the Ninevites, of all things, repent. And it's not because of the power of his preaching. Notice his preaching in verses 4 and 5. On the first day Jonah started into the city, he proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Those are the only words that we have that Jonah preached. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. And then it says the Ninevites believed God. So it's not the power of Jonah's preaching, but rather the purpose of God's grace that causes this and the king of Nineveh then declares a national fast and a time of national repentance. And as a result of this, verse 10 of chapter 3, God does not follow through with his threatened punishment. And then in chapter 4, the last chapter, we see Jonah's real reason for disobeying God. He was afraid indeed. But he was not afraid of the cruelty and the arrogance of the Ninevites. It turns out he was afraid of the mercy and compassion of the Lord. Chapter 4 and verse 1. Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. This is why I didn't want to go. Not because I was afraid that they might do something to me. I was afraid you might do something for them. And now you've done it. Now you've gone and done it. You have now rescued people who don't deserve it. Go figure. Now take a look at the outline that you have inserted in your program. And I want us to see from this story some application for you and me, what it says about us and what it says about God. First, what does it say about us? that we see in, in Jonah? Well, I think it says at least three things about us. The first is we tend to see others as undeserving. We tend to see others as undeserving. So let me ask it to you this way. How many think that the gospel is for everyone? I already know the answer. Yep, the gospel's for everyone. Is there anyone... Who should not be given the gospel? I already know your answer for that as well. But let me ask this. What if you knew that a person sitting five feet from you right now was a known serial murderer 
who supposedly has been transformed by the gospel of Christ. Now, what do you think? Do you think that that guy or gal deserves to be in this room? And by the way, the person I just described would fit the resume of the Apostle Paul. A known serial murderer who has allegedly been transformed. And many people still feared Paul such that he had to have letters of recommendation for him to be able to enter and perform his ministry in the churches. Let me ask it another way. What if you knew a person within five feet of you right now who was a a practicing homosexual? Are there some people who are undeserving? And we could go down a list, and for each one of us, myself included, you would hit some point, if we haven't already, where you would say, okay, enough. (laughs) No further, not that person, not them, not people like that. We tend to see others as undeserving. And that's because of a second thing. We tend to see others that way because we tend to see ourselves in a particular way. We tend to see ourselves as deserving. We have this perverse way of turning grace into merit. You all know what I mean when I say that. That God has shown me His grace and we say we would answer correctly on the theology test that grace is unmerited favor from God. But in practice, we believe that we did something to deserve that. And if you believe that, if I believe that to any degree at all, to that degree, we will still hold out that there are some people who are undeserving. Let me just put it another way. Friends, If you believe, if you harbor in your heart, if I harbor in my heart, that there are some people who are undeserving of the ministry of the gospel that Jesus has told us to give to every creature, if we believe that there are any who are beneath that, then there is somewhere in the recesses of our heart that we believe somehow we deserve what God has given us. Jonah is the Old Testament older brother. Do you know what I mean when I say that? You remember the story of the prodigal son. And a man had two sons, and the prodigal went and used his inheritance on riotous living. And he came back to seek mercy from the father, and the father ran to him. But the Bible tells us that the older brother was like Jonah, angry. Why? Because I deserve this, and they don't. We tend to see others as undeserving, ourselves as deserving. And as it relates to God, we tend to see God, I couldn't come up with a better word, as naive. Naive. Now, here's what I mean by that. God, do you really know what you're doing? Do you really know what you're doing in bringing that person into our circle? Do you really know what you're doing in sending me into those people's circle? You surely don't understand the full realities of this situation. You see, when I asked earlier, does everybody need the gospel? Is there anyone who should not be given the gospel? We all say, yes, everyone 
needs the gospel. No, there's no one who should not be given the gospel. But the truth is, many of us believe that in the abstract from a distance. We're very happy for people to hear the gospel and be changed by the gospel as long as God does not make the foolish mistake of involving me in that. You want me to get involved with them? It'd be great if they got saved. I'll praise the Lord. And when they get saved and clean up their act, they can even come here. But use me in that? So we believe that everyone needs the gospel. And there's no one who should not be given the gospel in the abstract from a distance. But it's only when we're told to get close to them. Or they have the audacity to get close to us. It's only when they become a threat to our safety. To our safety. Or to our way of life. I mean, what's going to happen? This, this person has had that kind of wanton lifestyle and they're just going to repent and go off scot-free? Are you kidding me? And let's be honest, that's what many of us think. And that's what Jonah thought. And that's how Jonah acted. I saw this last week, just last week, in a couple of ways. I had someone come to me with whom I have dealt for a few years over and over and over and over again. And they go right back into the same thing over and over again. And my reaction is, that's it. No more for you. You don't deserve any more. And then the Spirit of God deals with my heart and says, how many times? Seven times? No. Seventy times. Seven times. I had a second occasion to receive a letter from someone from my, my past who writes this letter, this, this moving letter to me and my family. And is asking for help in the dire straits in which they have placed themselves yet again. And they say in the letter, you probably hate me. But I need help. I need direction. I need you to visit me. And I will admit to you, dear friends, a hardness of heart an impatience that says no more for you. But then in God's grace, His Spirit deals with my heart and says, you are no more deserving than they. Now be used as my instrument of grace. When I go to China and I see the nation of China from an American perspective, I got to tell you, I'm not thrilled with China. I'm not thrilled with China having 8 and 10% GDP every year. They've been growing for the last 15 years like crazy. I'd been told by those who had been to the mainland that there are just buildings springing up everywhere in China. You'll be amazed if you ever go to see it. There I was to see it. There are construction cranes everywhere. There's a joke that says the national bird in China is the construction crane. There's so much building going on. China rising. 
China's military growing. And that's a potential threat to our way of life. And I admit to you, I don't like it. But dear friends, we cannot mistake the nation for the people who live in that country. And we must see people as God sees those people. While I was in China, the Chinese treated me the way they treat other Chinese. A bit worse, actually, because you're an American presumed to have some money. So they tried to rip me off several times. But of course, we do the same kinds of things here. But the Chinese are pushy. Like, I mean, physically pushy. They get in your grill. They get in your... There is no such thing as personal space in China. And I'm getting ready to shove somebody. And then I realize I'm outnumbered by, say, a billion. (laughs) So I didn't. But there are over a billion people in China, and they are used to having to muscle their way in, and that's just what they do. But I didn't like it, and honestly, I didn't like them. But it's not who I like. It's who God has made and on, on whom God has told us to show His compassion. And the question is not then, let's move now from not how we see ourselves and how we see others and how we see God. Let's look at how God sees others and us and Himself. God sees others with compassion. Chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. This is how this book ends. But the Lord said, you, Jonah, have been concerned about this vine. God had provided a vine for him. And then God provided a worm to eat away that vine. And then God provided a wind that that made a scorching heat. And Jonah complains because, of course, Jonah deserves And he says, you've been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, died overnight. Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. Many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? You think about the great motor city. You think about who's in it. And then be honest. And you think about the comments that you have made or the thoughts that you have had about those people. And it is contrary to God's view of others. The Bible tells us that Jesus saw the crowds as as harassed and helpless as sheep who had no shepherd and he had compassion on them. God sees others with compassion. And how does He see us? He sees us with loving kindness. Loving kindness. Loving kindness is the closest we can come to the translation of a Hebrew word, hesed, that's used throughout the Old Testament of God's covenant love for His people, whereby He continually shows His mercy, His loving kindness. It's used in chapter 2 and verse 8 from Jonah's own mouth. It's used again from Jonah's own mouth in chapter 4 and verse 2 when he's complaining to God that you are a God of hesed, of loving kindness, of compassion and love. And that's all good when it's shown to me. I just don't want you showing it to those people. But despite our selfishness and our self-centeredness, 
God, because of His promise, His covenant promise to His people, He continues to show His loving kindness to us. That's because He has made a covenant with His people. He made a covenant with Abraham that in you, Abraham, and your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Jesus is ultimately the seed through whom all of the nations of the earth are blessed. And so we have God's unconditional promise. Jonah has taken God's grace as deserved, and so then when it's removed, he becomes angry. But God was attempting to show Israel that he can and will intervene if they will but obey him. And so God sees others with compassion. He sees us with loving kindness. And lastly, he sees himself, not as we do often, naive, but as he truly is. You see, God is saying, Jonah, I know what I'm doing. I don't need you to correct my so-called mistakes. I, a sov- your sovereign God, will put you in situations that will show you your character and those situations will also reveal my character. And so what do we do with this going into 2013? Friends, I wanted to bring this message because I want to prepare us for 2013 as we move into our ministry center and God gives us now multiplied opportunities to reach people both in Trenton and beyond. By God's grace, this is going to be a church of God's grace. And this is going to be a place that welcomes all comers. And we collectively need to get that straight at the beginning of 2013. By God's grace, there will be people who come into this church who need the gospel of Christ who are not like you and me. And they don't have the background that you and I have. And so we must prepare ourselves. The Bible tells us in chapter 1 and verse 1 of Jonah, chapter 3 and verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. It starts with the word of the Lord. And so I say in your outline, in 2013 and beyond, let us resolve to, first of all, let us read God's word. But Jonah, of course, did not obey. And so the second thing we resolve to do together in 2013 is not only read God's Word, but then to heed God's Word. And then lastly, to spread God's Word to everyone who needs the gospel. And who needs the gospel? (laughs) Everyone. Now, I'm going to send an email out this afternoon or tomorrow to those that are on our email list with a suggested uh, uh, devotional that you can use throughout 2013. It'll be a link to a PDF document, and it's got a Bible reading plan so that you will read through the Bible in a year. As a matter of fact, if you follow that plan, you will read through the Old Testament in its entirety in a year. You'll read through the New Testament twice and the book of Psalms twice. You can slow it down. There's another way to do it, and that's in the instructions. We're going to send that to everybody that's on our email list. It's also got a a short devotional for every day of of the year. And so we're going to start the year outright reading God's Word, resolve to heed God's Word, 
so that we can spread God's word together as his, as his church. Now, why was Jonah in the belly of that fish? Why a fish? Why couldn't God just have, you know, had the ship fall apart, let him take a piece of it and float to the shore? They apparently were fairly close to the shore anyway. Why a fish? Well, the only answer the Bible gives is found in the New Testament. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. God was using this story of Jonah to point to a greater Jonah who would come. And the one who would live and die for us. And he would spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth and then rise victorious over the grave. Friends, in order for us to move forward with the compassion of our God of compassion, it starts with a relationship with that God through Jesus and his death and life on our behalf. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look into the pages of your word and see there who you are again, your compassion, your loving kindness, the way you see others, the way you see us, the way you see yourself. Oh Lord, we are so tainted by sin that our perspective is skewed on who we are and who others are and who you are. Thank you by your word and your spirit for giving us corrective lenses. Lord, we have very often 2020 blindness that needs to be corrected. We thank you for the corrective instruction of your word. And I pray that in 2013, we will be people who reflect your character to your world for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.